Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain, the talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Hello, welcome everyone. My name is Helen Parton. I'm a journalist, author and moderator for this evening, which I'm really excited about. It's one of my favourite things to do. And with this topic, it's something that, um, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about. Um, The fabric of fear. Fabric of fear. Designing out danger in the urban realm. Well, the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this was um, that incredibly... um, poignant image of the red-headed woman being held down by several police officers during the Sarah Everard vigil. I'm sure you know which one I mean. Um, which was hap- which occurred on the 13th of March three years ago. But um, I think it probably all sticks in our minds in terms of um, women's safety and others and you know others in the community's ability to go where they want, when they want. And really, um, and the first point... Um, whether, you know, uh, the uh, degree to which those in law enforcement really kind of have, have our backs and enable us to um, go where we want to be and, and have the freedom to, um, yeah, have, you know, go about our business in the way that we want to um, and how they've been found lacking in um, a number of occasions on the last, in the last few years. But they're not the only ones. There are a number of stakeholders involved in the topic of safety in the public realm. So this is really about having a rethink of how we shape um, the cities of the future and how we're able to be creating truly inclusive spaces. So that's what we're all about um, this evening, to kind of have that discussion and hopefully move the conversation on a little bit. And as Hugh said, where's he gone? (laughs) To inspire some action as well as just words. So um, without further ado, I'm going to introduce um, our speakers um, for this evening. So um, in front of me, I have Hannah Benahoot, which is so lovely to see you again. (laughs) Um, North London represent. (laughs) Um, So artist, can I say the architect thing? Architect in recovery, (laughs) whose work spans public art, illustration, uh, education, and so much more. We'll be hearing a lot from Hannah later, as we will... Deborah, <laughs> Deborah's over there, amazing. Deborah Saunt, founding director of DH, DSDHA Architects. Um, and uh, again, so many projects that I want to ask you about. And um, yeah, really pushing the conversation forward. So can't wait to hear what you've got to say. Now, Martin Evans, again, I've known you for a long time, and it's great to be on a panel with you. Finally, I don't think think we've been on a panel together. How fabulous. So Martin is creative director of Lancet UNI, so we'll be coming at it with a very serious developer standpoint, of course. 
um, and always has something amazing to say. So yeah, it's great to have Martin on the panel as well. And we've got Sarah Ackland who is in front of me. It's great. So Sarah is project architect with Muff Architecture Art. And um, yeah, I am doing being a little bit of digging. So um, yeah, Sarah too, um, let's bring it on. <laughs> so um, let's do some scene settings. So perhaps this might be... Um, uh, a chance for all of the panelists. We do have one panelist who's not with us who will have um, a bit of audio from to also um, provide another valuable contribution, but I'll come on to that in a second. So let me get this um, opening gambit. So um, can you perhaps introduce yourselves, panelists, in a little bit more detail? I've introduced them, yeah, but I was going to say perhaps, you know, where you, you know, where you, where do you come, where do you come to at this subject from, you know, where do you come to this subject at, you know, what's the first step if you were, if you were introducing this subject, let's say not at a dinner party because that's far too middle class, I don't know, in the pub, what's the first step, what's the first, you know, thing to bear in mind when taking a fresh look at designing out, at designing you know, more inclusive urban landscapes to make it safer for all. So no biggie to start off with. <laughs> so, uh, Martin, let's come to you first. Do you want me to stand up? As you wish. Do you want me to stand up? Yeah, I mean... I'll stand over here. <laughs> hello, everybody. Hello, Helen. Hey. Um, so I'm a property developer, Helen says. Uh, if I say that out loud in some rooms, people hiss. So uh, it's, it's not often the best thing to say. But what I say as a way of dampening that down, is that there's not much that we do in our lives that isn't involved with property. We get born, we die, we get sick and get healed, we have our children, we fall in love, we eat, we sleep, we work. Everything that we do, we either do in or around a building. And so if, if any of us, probably all of us in this room, have got anything to do with building buildings and making places, it's about all of life. And there's probably, you know, second to the health care or food industries, there's probably not another industry that has that much impact on people's lives. And so if we're bothered at all about the world and people, then we've got an enormous responsibility as people who work in this business and an enormous responsibility to make places that are good for people because I can't see the point of doing anything else. Um, and there is a, a lie in my industry that is, if people are happy, it's not necessarily valuable. And that's a terrible lie that bad property developers tell you. Uh, because happy people create valuable places, because they work. And so I think uh, the way that I want to do my job every day is to understand how we build places that make people happy, that make people thrive, that, make, that give them the lives that make them safe, comfortable, make their children happy. When they get to old age and get lonely, they're a little bit less lonely. Um, all of those things, all those problems that we have, we can do something about in our business. And the more that we do about them, the better the places that we make and the more valuable they are so my shareholders are happy. And all of those things can all happen at the same time. So I think that we, I'm just going to shut up now, but I'm just going to say that it, it, the thing that we need to focus on to address this subject, which is about fear, is about making places where people feel happy and comfortable and can have good lives that mean they can thrive. Because if they can do that, then they're probably going to be happy and safe. Fabulous. Thank you, Martin. Now, as promised, uh, Rob, do we have the audio ready? Oh, yeah. Is that, can we work? Can we do that? Okay. 
Yeah, um, yeah, I think this yeah? is okay. self well, self-explanatory. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll explain what we're listening to before we listen to it. So we do have an additional speaker who can't be with us tonight, um, Farah uh, Benes, who is um, FFA Security Group and also Cat Calls of London rep. So um, she's going to be talking from a couple of perspectives about this issue. So Rob, if you are ready, let's this, roll. This is our attempt to be as inclusive as possible. <laughs> Good evening. I'm Farah Benis, and I am the Managing Director at FFA Security Group. My background and main work life is in physical protection and security risk management consulting. My other hand is in women's safety and violence against women and girls prevention. I also ran will run a campaign under the heading Cat Calls of London, which has taken over 28,000 stories of public sexual harassment from London alone. And under that banner, I facilitate youth workshops covering a variety of topics such as sexual harassment, consent, bystander intervention, and community building. Over the last few years, I've engaged in your urban planning community in a few different ways, largely thanks to Dinah Bornat at ZCD Architects, which has led me to a keen interest in crime prevention through environmental design, an approach I like because it emphasizes the strategic use of the built environment to enhance safety and reduce fear particularly for vulnerable populations. I think one of the first steps in reimagining urban landscapes to bolster safety involves gaining a really comprehensive understanding of how design influences human behavior and perceptions of security. This begins with the principle of natural surveillance, which posits that public spaces should be designed to maximize visibility. And so this includes proper lighting, clear sight lines, and things like strategic placement of windows to foster a sense of watchfulness and community guardianship. And also, if there is one thing you take away from this evening, please, please, please no more recessed doors down dark alleyways if you ever walk through london back streets late at night you will start cursing the people that think those are a good idea i'm in a sidebar there's an excellent book on school safety by paul timms two m's which although through american school lens it addresses crime prevention through environmental design, but also the importance of utilizing and engaging with community to foster safer environments. So I really recommend that to anyone interested in diving further into this subject after tonight. Getting back on track to my provided synopsis, I think it's clear that in urban environments, the prevailing approach to development is very often driven by profit motives and characterized by dense housing without adequate consideration for mixed use spaces, which has significant implications for safety and community well-being. 
And the reality is, when we prioritise profit over people, it does lead to environments that feel unsafe, particularly after dark. And that's something that can exacerbate feelings of isolation and fear among community residents. So how do we counteract this? Urban planners and designers have to adopt a holistic view that considers the diverse needs of all community members. And this includes integrating mixed-use developments that encourage activity and engagement, thereby creating eyes on the street, which is a concept championed by urban sociologist Jane Jacobs. That's also another very good book recommendation, by the way. So by engaging community members in the design process, we can ensure that solutions are responsive to the unique needs and concerns of the people who actually have to live in these spaces. So just to finish up, because I fear I'm going on here, but I think it's really important to note that tackling fear and enhancing safety is also not solely the responsibility of those who experience it. It's a collective societal duty that we all have and should play a part in. And this requires a significant cultural shift towards empathy and proactive engagement in safety initiatives and things like public art and community-led design processes and educational campaigns. They can all play really pivotal roles in raising awareness and fostering a shared commitment to creating safer, more inclusive urban environments. So I guess the first step towards safer urban landscapes is a paradigm shift in how we conceive of and interact with our built environment. And this involves a move away from design practices driven solely by economic considerations and move towards a more inclusive community-centric approach that values safety and engagement and the well-being of all citizens. If we foster environments that are not only physically safer, but also perceived as safer, we can begin to address the deep-seated issues of fear and vulnerability in our urban spaces. I'm going to stop there and take a very big sip of the Negroni I'm drinking in honour of this <laughs> evening's festivities. But thank you very much, and I'm really looking forward to hearing how this discussion continues. Perfect. Gosh, that, it works. Hooray! <laughs> there is such a thing as a hybrid event after all. Um, okay, so, um, well, it feels like we, we planned this perfectly seamlessly public art being at least one of the saviors of, of, of safety so it feels like a really opportune time to hand over to Hannah <laughs> hi hello 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 um I can't really remember the question oh gosh I the question was so long ago it was like, yeah, yeah 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 I'm just, it gonna, was I'm just gonna go for it yeah I would okay, yeah awesome. <laughs> uh yeah so I suppose um uh Picking up from that, I am I am an artist, so I come at this topic looking at how public art can have an effect on how people feel within the city. And so I think even if everyone like all aligns and we like kind of agree, like in terms of planners and property developers and everyone kind of decides there are certain spaces that aren't safe, like 
horrible alleyways or something it takes so long for the urban environment to change like it goes into some planning policy which trickles down which trickles down so like for seven years we all agree that a certain alleyway is awful and then it takes seven years to change it so in the meantime what can we do in these spaces um so that's where i think specifically public art can play a really interesting low cost like high impact role and I think artists are such a, um, a wealth of knowledge and creativity that um, clients and people can tap into to actually make changes in these spaces. And I think sometimes there's always like this idea that the way you make something safe is by like flooding it with light. And I don't think it always needs to be quite that straightforward. I think just the idea of delighting people around the city or making people laugh or making people smile when they turn a corner can have just as much as of like a fabulous effect on the city and change your experience of it rather than just always flooding things with light. Um, so yeah, I just think that like art has such a like a fabulous um, role to play when we're talking about fear and safety around the city. So um, yeah, that's kind of my perspective. <laughs> perfect, perfect, Hannah. Um, Sarah, I'm gonna come to you next. Um, so um, I do love a pun. So first steps, running, running in the city. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, so I'd like to hear about your, um, experiences of um, uh, uh, safety in the urban realm and also what you've been researching as well. I think you just pushed the thing up. Hopefully that works. Or maybe not. You can grab this one if you want. This definitely works, so I'm going to hand it over. Hello? Yeah, that works. Okay, we'll abandon that one, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm here because um, some people emailed the guys and told them that I should be on the panel. <laughs> no, um, yeah, so I'm doing a PhD that's looking at women in public space through the lens of women running. Um, and I work at Muff Architecture Art, which is uh, always at least 80% women practice. Um, we're about to become 100% and I think it's our first time, which is a bit daunting actually. Um, but I can't remember the question either. Oh, the question was, um, what's the first step in um, addressing the, the issue of um, improving um, the public realm so that it's safe for everybody? Just kind of a sure. you know, so I scene think setting uh, kind of introduction slash, yeah, here you are. From sort of my work, I have, sort of used running as a tool to speak to women outside of architecture because we're just such an echo chamber like we are the worst um and i think it's really firstly about listening it's about putting yourself in spaces that you don't normally go in actually trying to find the silent voice when when you you know when you meet a new client and they're like oh yeah we're working with this fantastic group of stakeholders it's like okay well those are the people they want you to talk to what about the people that they maybe don't even see themselves um which you only really find out by getting in the space really really hard and i used running for that basically by just sort of running around places and getting super embedded um and listening like people think they're listening and they're not um and you can't really do listening on a 3 p.m consultation on a Wednesday 
like you're not going to meet the right people. You really have to gain trust for people to really talk to you as well. So that's my, firstly, listen and understand the constrictions that people have in space. And then I think my other approach to things is, is similar to Hannah really, is actually thinking about expansion and how much joy we can have in a space and really celebrate that and create space for it instead of kind of being like, okay, well, that space works. And it's like, mm, let, let's celebrate that that works and see how we can bring that into the spaces that are a little bit more difficult to navigate. So that's sort of what... I mean, actually, I've just handed in the first draft of my PhD, and that's pretty much the conclusion. There you go, everyone. <laughs> well, congratulations on that one, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, yeah, um, uh, just a reminder, if anyone wants to jump in from the audience with their opinions, just let me know. We can go to you. Um, I thought what was quite interesting when you mentioned running was that there was an advert that um, Samsung had um, oh quite God, recently. It was, terrible. it was like, it's 2 a.m., I'll go for a run. And you're like, well, that's not really how it works works so um oh we've got um we've got a hang on we've oh missed, hang on we've missed deborah oh yeah oh and deborah of course my god <laughs> <laughs> what a faux pas that is deborah I, I don't mind oh my goodness i don't mind sitting this one out <laughs> no no of course not uh, deborah Sort. let's have your views on the um first steps that one would take to I, improve the public uh, realm. i think whenever you are asked to look at a, a, an issue or a challenge, you kind of stand back and ask what is the higher kind of purpose of the question. So when I look at the fabric of fear, it speaks to me of everything that a city shouldn't be. And so our, my guiding light uh, is that the city should be, you know, the right, we all have a right to the city, to, to a democratized accessible space. So you start from the idea of making it as inclusive as possible. And um, so with that in mind, uh, I always put myself in an uncomfortable position of trying to ask myself questions that I don't know the answer. And so at the moment I'm working with my, I call them my friends now, because I've got two of my design think tank students from the London School of Architecture here, and here's another London School of Architecture student. Uh, so my way of addressing problems like that is to do research. And the London School of Architecture looks at these big problems about rights to the city. And this year we're looking at, uh, we've all heard the word defund the police. So we're actually, well, Ben, what are we looking at? Um, imagining, thank you, Deborah. Um, <laughs> uh, we're imagining uh, a world without the Metropolitan Police, specifically Hackney. So yeah, so we're looking at what happens if you, ha you de-police the city. And I could probably talk with Ben and others about that later. Oh, wow. Well, I was having an interesting conversation with, with someone else at the other end of the room about the police uh, earlier on in a slightly different angle. So maybe we'll come on to that. Um, but first, let's hear from the lady in the leopard skin. Just thank you for everybody's um, contributions. It's really interesting. I think um, I have lots of thoughts on on design of public space um just to give some context um i'm an architect and i do projects in public space but i also work for a council and head um placemaking for um projects for that council so we are people who kind of really look at this topic quite intensely because the space you design can then have loads of 
I mean, guarantee there's graffiti on the bench just after you put it there. You know, it's like they see it and they want that. There's so many issues when it comes to safety and inclusion. And um, I think what my kind of question to everybody really is where this balance lies, because whether it's about inclusion, i.e. the concept of inclusion, like no one is ever fully inclusive, actually inclusive spaces mean you provide lots of different ones for different people, because you never, like, otherwise it, you have nothing. Um, and then similarly, when you talk about safety, um, what we always find is that Met Police, secure by Design come in and go, oh no, like, um, that makes people gather there, or people drink there, or people do that there, and basically they don't want people to gather. So in our council, what's happened is that, yeah, crime's gone down because we've made loads of, you know, aggressive architecture or areas that people can't gather in, but it means no one's using any public spaces. So it's, it, it, where, how do you, you know, um, achieve this balance between designing, um, you know, uh, safe, spaces that um, you know also are good for people to use and inclusive spaces that are also particular so where does the balance lie and where do we find that point that's a great question and thank you for um, in contributing so uh, Martin I might come to you on this one firstly have you got a mic have you got a mic at the moment Are you asking me a question or are you just asking me to <laughs> Well, I, I got someone. I, I, I um, basically delegated, so... Uh, <laughs> got someone else to ask the question. No, a delicate balance between um, aggressive architecture. I like that. Yeah. And... And... Yeah. Yeah. I think that... I think the issue I have with all of these policies that you can put in place, either through design or through management of places, just assume that there are people who will live in a place who are nice, and there are other people who will come to that place who are not nice, who shouldn't be there. And then you've got to ask, well, where should they be? And why are the people who live there the only nice people? And it, it, it just immediately breaks people down into bad and good. And you've got to legislate and design out the bad and protect the good. And in my business, that too often gets broken down into people who've got lots of money are the good people, and people who've got no money are the bad people. And that's pretty standard in my business, that that's the way that that breaks down. Um, somebody who mentioned Jane Jacobs? Somebody mentioned Jane Jacobs. I think the lady who was on the, on the recording. Um, Jane Jacobs is my hit hero, and uh, if you don't know who she is, she's a, she was a campaigner who lived in New York, uh, wrote a series of amazing books in the 60s and 70s, um, and she sort of invented citizen action. Um, she fought a campaign, two campaigns actually, in Lower Manhattan to stop an expressway going through the city, and then she stopped Washington Square being pulled down and the North to South expressway going down through south of Manhattan. And she had this phrase called eyes on the street, which became her kind of catchphrase. And that was about, um, not about necessarily des specifically designing things that make places safe, but relying on people in communities to make places safe. So people looking out for each other, looking after each other. And the eyes, what she meant by eyes on the street was designing things so that people were on the streets. They weren't separated from the streets, living upstairs and in buildings and around the corner. They were living and working and looking and communicating and talking to each other on the streets. And that's something that inspires me every day, is about how you create places where naturally 
there are lots of people outside in a place doing things together that it's in itself mitigates against people behaving badly because it's sort of self-policing and Deborah I think that's so fascinating how you might imagine a project where you take the police out of London and that's not because take them away because they're bad for people take them away because there are there's a replacement process that keeps people safe and I think that's about designing places as a whole to make people feel that they can control the places where they live and work yeah take care Deborah, of this kids. might be an opportune moment to come back to you um, just about perhaps referencing some of the I mean I love the um, exchange square project in terms of you know the city of London you know you can't move for gilets right and uh, <laughs> generally it's quite um, kind of a one-sided demographic to some extent but um, you know how do you make it you know that's a good example of making spaces more inclusive so perhaps with reference to that or a oh, project yeah. of your uh, choice might be an, a way to kind of further the conversation um, yeah so I suppose uh, if, if you build on this idea of what is a space post-policing and it's it is one that's self-policing but in order to get to that point, you have to do a lot of dismantling, just to talk about the post-policing aspect of it. Um, one of the things, as designers, uh, we all get involved in is, you know, this thorny question of privately owned public space. Uh, is that worse? Is it better? Well, let's face it, 99% of London public spaces are pretty much privately owned. It is extraordinary when you look below the ground and see the legislative undercroft of it but I think some places are kind of self-policing like Exchange Square used to be uh, Exchange Square is the piece of land that has been built over Liverpool Street Station so if you're getting a platform you're on platform 9 going off to Norfolk or going to Essex you will see there's a park over the top of it and that used to be just a concrete and uh, stone kind of 1980s uh, public space with a little sort of strip of grass in it and it was kind of self-policing because nobody felt welcome. There weren't any signs say, don't go in. It was just you got there and you felt really uncomfortable if you weren't a banker, basically. And I could put another word next to that, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was. And we got the job because we went for an interview and they said, oh, we're really interested in your research. You do this interesting landscape research and you're architects. Uh, would you look at uh, Exchange Square? And we basically said, well, I said, um, well, we wouldn't be seen dead there. You know, and so that was, we sort of took it from this idea that we felt utterly excluded from it and didn't want to be part of it and tried to follow, what was your name again? The lady, Sana, just put it, nailed it so quickly. I don't know if you heard her say, you create a public space, which is not one public space, it's a range of offerings for lots of different people to happily coexist at the same time. Uh, and you do that by talking to absolutely loads of people to find out what loads of people want, which is what I think Sarah said. Um, and, and then you um, bring a bit of mystery and wonder. So you kind of, on Exchange Square, you rift off the fact you're floating over a live railway line. So if you go there between eight and nine in the morning, there is a mystical steam engine that goes through the space. Steam rises through the space. But most importantly, it's got a water feature and all the mums and dads bring their kids there. And so on the weekend, it's a public park. During the week, it's a place where many different people from in the city and Hackney and Tower Hamlets come over and use it to walk their dogs, etc. It's become a piece of city. And the great thing is uh, the client who are 
developers as well, like Martin. At the beginning, they were like, how can we program it? Uh, we want uh, food trucks, we want events, we want music, we, we want the ice skating, we want Christmas. And now, they're like, actually, we agree with you. All we want is the gardener. And that's all they've got. So I think it's following Sana's brilliant suggestion earlier. But it is um, really sort of be more, be as maximise your inclusivity and work to the extremes is our motto. Always work to the extremes. It's completely um, accessible now to those um, who need it. It wasn't before. Uh, it's open 24 hours. Uh, there are no security men telling you not to be there. Uh, so it kind of works. Brilliant. Thank you. I didn't mean, and there are no police officers. <laughs> I think we should have probably invited some. So, um, yeah, maybe next time. Um, so, from um, the City of London to the mean streets of Tottenham, I think might be a useful way to go. Um, I tell you what was really interesting was um, I went to um, the Beyonce concert last year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was fabulous. Tottenham um, was covered in glitter. Yeah, right? Yeah, it was um, amazing. So, yeah, I went into my football local pub on Tottenham High Road, which normally is like, get the match on. And it was, uh, which I kind of like, um, but it was FA Cup final day. And I was like, oh, okay, I can, I can check out. This is going somewhere, I promise. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, it was FA Cup final day. Oh, they'll stick the match on. And they were like, and then they had the pictures on. And I was like, can you, um, can you put the sound on? They were like, no, we've got a Beyonce playlist. We're not sticking, we're not deviating from it. And it was so different to have a really blokey pub. You, you know what I want to, it's, uh, yeah, it's on the high road. You know, there's blasting out. There are loads of blokes, you know, all in their blue bomber jackets, jeans, ugh. And for Beyonce concert day, it was women and LGBTQ plus community representing cowboy hats, everyone in silver, and it was a takeover. And it was so fabulous to see, not just, you know, the two and a half hours that Beyonce was on stage, but actually the whole day really transformed the area. And it felt, when you came out of the stadium, more importantly, there was, you know, Destiny's Child blaring from here. There was, you know, a whole, you know, it felt like Beyonce land for a little bit. But actually, most importantly, it felt like, and it shouldn't feel like we have permission to go down the high road and we feel safe at night. But actually, we did. And there was a huge army of basically not hetero men taking over that area. So, yeah, I guess my point is probably like, you know, can you talk through one of your projects in that area <laughs> after that huge <laughs> intro? But I think that's, you know, it's an area where people, you know, I feel a little bit, you know, oh, God, can I go from, um, you know, Bruce Grove Station? I actually gave up go, um, being in a choir because I didn't feel safe from going from the choir um, in the school to the bus stop because every single time I went there, I got catcalled. So I basically gave up an activity because it didn't feel self in the, safe in the urban realm. How awful is that in whenever it was, 2022? Yeah. Dreadful. So, um, you know, what can we do? What's going on up there? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's something in the air as well on football days. Like, sometimes, sometimes, and when I lived in Newcastle as well, it was similar. Like, I could tell if Newcastle had lost, like, the air was aggy. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? And even the little lads would be like, boom, 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 <laughs> down the street. Um, uh, yeah, oh, just thinking about what you were saying about Beyonce. I think sometimes like, um, it reminds me of the Barbie movie. Like people forget when you like collectively call women the power, we will come out in like our droves. Girls, gays and theys are just like, let's come together and take over a space. Um, so I think that could be a, 
a really interesting like power to harness somehow more within uh, public space. Um, yeah, and I've done a couple of projects in, in Tottenham specifically. Um, I did one uh, called Girls of the Light, and that project was from a, a similar experience to you. When I was coming home from my studio to my house, I always made a decision, shall I go the long way or the dark way? And I was like, way up, how brave I'm feeling that night. Um, and so I ended up doing these sort of um, projections in um, different spaces, and I, um, I did a... Um, I asked on Instagram for people to submit spaces that they didn't feel safe in. Um, and so I ended up going to all these different like alleyways and back ends and stuff. And I'm c kind of um, uh, similar to uh, what this person was talking about before that what I found really interesting is that I thought my idea behind projecting there was that the people who sort of dared to use that space already would kind of come across these projections and just be like delighted by it. Um, but what happened is that um, mostly women came out in pairs at least or with friends and they came out to see artwork in alleyways and I was like this is wild like I did not expect people to go out of their way to see to go to a space that tech like, usually doesn't feel safe but like I think there's some sort of like safety in numbers or when you have the bravery maybe to try something in these hostile spaces and some things will work and some things won't but why don't we try um to think about how you can transform spaces especially ones that maybe yeah in areas that people feel maybe a little bit more unsafe there are plenty of alleyways and back streets and all sorts um around london so there's lots of opportunity maybe if there's a way to like harness the uh the vibes of uh women up for a good time that might uh <laughs> help in the situation yeah maybe some girlies out yeah. for a good time right exactly. that uh -huh. neatly coming back to a conversation <laughs> I, we had with sarah just before that so um about kind of taking back the word girly which maybe it will form the basis of my question but um what i wanted to talk about was um the magpie project which you're involved with with um women and children as well right so yeah can you talk about that and maybe referencing some girlies as well Okay, a clear request <laughs> for a girly chat. Um, yeah, so the, the Magpie Project, um, I'm currently working with um, ATMA with the Magpie Project, which is um, a charity who um, support refugee women and girls. And um, I'm just going to go, I think I'm going off on tangent, but... Um, Tangents are good. That's what um, the Granny Talks are all about. On my point earlier about, like, quizzing the client, Nuren were like... We don't need that big of a space because by 2025 we're going to have housed all the homeless or displaced women and children, refugees in Newham. But the most of the people who the Magpie Centre deal with are not, they're not residents of Newham. You, like you have to have lived somewhere for so long to be able to claim on the housing register or whatever. So they are providing spaces for people that nobody else is providing for, people who come from outside of Newham. Anyway, the Magpie Project is an amazing project. Jane Williams runs it. Please support them. Please donate. Um, and they really have that value of sort of... Uh, they want their mums and, and, and minis, as they put it, to have what we have, not to have our casts off. And um, really, sort of, they've got a new campaign called... Um, a kitchen for every mum or, or something close to that. Sorry, that was really poor. Um, but anyway, we're working on their children, new children's centre and sort of transforming space to that. But just working with Newham has been really interesting to sort of like their perception of what Magpie are doing and actually the scope of what Magpie is doing is above and beyond. 
Um, and you wanted me to talk about girly? Oh, I don't know. I think, you know, that's all part of the conversation, right? Yeah, I actually had just like a few sort of things I was thinking about as everyone was talking. And sort of Martin, you were saying about like spaces that people <laughs> feel they can control. But I actually feel like it's like spaces where they can be a bit disorderly. Like where, w what is the space you can control? Like actually, and I mean, that's like the police issue, isn't it? it when the police are there and looking down, like, oh, when you go to CSM and all the security guards, you know, when you sat outside on the canal and, and you just feel like you're being watched. I don't want a space which I feel I can control. I kind of do want, it's like we talk about children. So you're right in front of me. Um, <laughs> and risk, you know, actually there's this book written by Elizabeth Wilson called The Sphinx in the City. And she talks about how women, because we are not, we've always been controlled. We're more open to a little bit more subversion. And maybe that's a good thing. And it was funny that Deborah talked about fountains because the fountain. Someone told me the other day that fountains are used, like in Trafalgar Square, outside Central St Martins, to stop people protesting. I hadn't even thought about that. And so then I was like, oh. So I thought this was like lovely, joyful thing. Loads of children, lovely. But it's it's a method of control. So how do we leave enough space for subversion? And I think, kind of. That's actually how I met Hannah, was she took this projector in a dustbin and did Girls of the Light. And I was like, who did you ask permission to do this? She's like, no one. <laughs> and I just think we need a little bit of space for that, for unprogrammed, for, you know, even sort of the idea, yeah, of fountains then being like a blocker. And you said about the police, uh, the uh, secure by design, and we, we have issues with this, but then actually it's like, maybe you don't put a bench, but maybe you put a curb there that's just about high enough for someone to sit on. How about like designing something which someone could skate on, but it looks like a planter? You know, we need to be a little bit more subversive in the way that we design rather than the, this is safe for these people, this is safe for that people. And Hannah used the word transforming. And I used that a lot at the beginning of my PhD. And then I'm like, what are we actually trying to do? I don't know if we can really change stuff. What does transforming mean? E expanding, taking up, taking over? And I think that's what actually Magpie do really well, is they're like really bold in their statement. They use, they actively use uh, different sort of streams of income as well in a sort of quite dominant manner. And I've been running this running series called Taking Space, which is literally about women taking up space um, and running without permission. And I think it's, it's actually about being disorderly, not about being safe. Okay. Sounds good. Um, Martin, disorderly, disruptive, subversion, not really kind of, you know, allowing people to be, you know, slightly unpredictable. That doesn't sound like a developer's dream to me. Well, what, I think what I meant by control is people who mm. own the space, the communities mm. who own the space is feeling in control of them so they can do what they like. Mm. Not being controlled by somebody that's not part of that community, which is, I think, what y you were talking about. What you were talking about. Um, I, I just want to say something about the fear of real danger and the fear of imagined danger, because those two things are quite different. Um, in West London, I'm working in a town where the council just did a survey of why people aren't using the town centre. 
and they thought that people aren't using the and they found out that people aren't using the town centre because they're scared to go to the town centre in the evening when it's dark because they'll get robbed or beaten or get attacked. The actual level of crime is very low for that part, part of London. And so there were, they discovered there was a real difference between people's perception of danger and the, the real danger they were in. And the real reason why people don't want to go to the town centre is because there's nobody there. Because there's nothing happening in that town centre in the evening that means it's lively and there are people and they're out and they're in the street and they're doing things and it feels safe. Safety in numbers is not a dumb uh, uh, thesis. So... I think we have to be careful to understand what, where there is real danger, and that has one particular set of, of actions that can solve it, and where people are afraid uh, of a perception of danger, where we can then design to change that. So I think it's about, I just want to leave with that thought about real and imagined, real and perceived yeah. danger. Interesting. I'm going to take a little bit of a gear shift now, and I'm going to come to Deborah for this particular question. But I'm going to I'm going to pre-see a little bit, so don't worry. Um, so um, we've got we're in London, but also um, when I was writing a feature about. Um, women's safety and inclusivity in public spaces. One of the cities that came to mind was Vienna. And um, the um, secret to Vienna's success was, turns out, don't just employ straight white men to um, have the, you know, implement the planning policy and make the decisions. Who knew that could be successful? Well, turns out Vienna is incredibly successful and has had quite a long time um, implemented a range of measures, everything from, you know, curb heights being at the right, you know, being, being appropriate for pushchairs to, you know, really high level thinking in terms of making the city safer for all. So, um, Deborah, you've talked about um, embedding um, EDI into policy. So, um, you know, that, you know, diversity and inclusion piece. So can you talk a little bit more about that and why that's so important in this particular topic? Oh, now where do I start on this one? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a nice meaty question. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, th I think it's, I think the, like embedding um, equality, diversity and inclusion into policy is, is a really good lens. I mean, it, as a designer, you're, you're, you're or, and as a citizen, you're looking through various lenses and when it comes to making uh, the built environment policy is obviously an important framework. So uh, I think the work that the GLA have been doing in particular on their little tiny report for uh, uh, making space for women and girls uh, that they've done is really excellent. And it actually runs alongside another campaigning body called Making Space for Girls, which also is suggesting that we change the lens um, through which we look at things. And, and the simplest example I can give to you of where I've personally confronted it, my own preconceptions, is um, I designed a Mooga 15 years ago in Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. And that is a multi-use games area. And um, we, we took the money and uh, we t were told we had this amount of money from Sport England to put in a Mooga. And I said, um, do they, uh, rifting on the muff, uh, make it you know make it up as you go along and don't ask permission we basically put in a really tiny mooga and um nobody noticed and with the rest of the money we spent it on a really lovely public space next to it so that subliminally um we were making a space not just for sport but for other things to go on roll on 15 years later 
is um, next to King's Cross, uh, Euston and St Pancras, where we're doing a, a lovely park. Anne is here. She's the project architect over there. Hi, Anne. Associate, I should say. Project associate. And um, we'd done a master plan about 50 years ago, like an urban framework about 15 years ago. And finally, we're going to build the Mooga. And it was brilliant because Camden said, um, actually, we've got a new policy to sort of challenge what a Mooga is. Because let's face it, only about 25% of the population, if that, will even go in a Mooga. Uh, because it's assumed that you're male. It's assumed that you're male and you like sport. And it's assumed that you're organised enough to get a team together because they're not really sort of places to hang out on your own. Anyway, um, long story short, we, we, because of the really great work that Camden are doing, we've now got Edit, Edit Collective working with us, or Edit as they're known now, uh, make looking, working with local young people, in particular those people who don't play sport all the time, to design a whole new landscape at the base of this tower that's part of the scheme. And it really is about putting on a different set of lenses into your goggles through which you're looking at the world. And we've got spaces for uh, that the young people have told us about. They want spaces for two of them to talk, four of them to talk, a whole gaggle of them to flirt with each other, but not be too close to each other. Um, and so I, I think what's really brilliant is it does prompt all of us, irrespective of how woke we think we are, to, um, you know, double check it's a really good checklist anyway that was really waffling sorry no that was good that was great that was good um so we've um i think just popped over the hour mark which is great and um so um let's uh have some um opinions from the floor ah lady in the red jumper um hi i by the way just wanted first of all to say a shout out for the fountains in granary square my five-year-old granddaughter she loves being disrespectful, disgraceful. She plays there with a hundred kids. None of them have their clothes on. All of them making a heck of a din. So I just, just wanted to say, I don't really mind if it was there to control people. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a committee. <laughs> Yeah, it's joyful, I promise you, even the m in the middle of winter. So anyway, um, even if it's accidental. Um, I just wanted, to, just wanted to touch on a common denominator. My name's Claire uh, Richards. I'm an architect, uh, which I need to say because I'm going to be mildly provocative because there's an undercurrent here around listening, around how people feel in the spaces we're talking about, you know, who's going to use the mugger. I, I really got into who's going to use the mugger and how you're going to make the mugger so more than 25% of people use it. Um, but we're talking about how people feel. We're talking much less about, okay, let's get rid of the designers and let's get the people who we think we know what they feel to do it themselves, and we've talked a bit on that, uh, ab around that, and I think that's a really important com common denominator. So um, we have, uh, I work with Footwork, we are a social change charity, and we fund and provide support to ordinary local citizens who spy up 
problem, which might be to do with safety in their own community. They have a really good idea how to resolve it. They're great at galvanizing their communities. And they are unbelievably motivated. And I'm afraid that as designers, nine times out of 10, for that to be successful, were not needed. So I just wanted to. Oh, got ca oh, already Sorry. a counter, counter argument there, yeah, so hopefully. <laughs> yeah, because it's, uh, I, I work in a university. I don't really want to say which one because it's, but critical about the teaching and I think it's a general pattern. I went to the diversity in architecture event at the RBA, I think it's like about the week before last. And um, I mean, the statistics in, in um, AJ is 80% of the architecture profession is white and male and middle class. I mean, I mean, it's not actually that you need the community, you need the community in the profession. And my students are the community and they really didn't know that. <laughs> so they're not told that their experience is important. They don't know that their experience counts, but they actually adapt to what's expected from them. So I'm not actually criticizing the tutors because we have amazing tutors, but I mean, I wasn't really queued up until I really, I had to go to an anti-racist workshop that was done by people working at our university. So not like somebody you invite and they speak to for an hour about uh, unconscious bias. Um, and it's like, oh my God, shit. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a racist, I've never been a racist, but you have to become in the architecture profession or the architecture teaching. It's not only about race, racism as well. It's about, it's about females, it's about other cultures, it's about religion, it's about divert, like disability. How many people in here actually use a C with a disability? I mean, I'm invisibly disabled um, and, and it's not been talked about this. So I'm outraged and there are people who spoke and said there was a 65-year-old person who said, why am I up here still talking about diversity in architecture? So yes, I agree, but the best thing would be to actually, why are the students in my university and in Westminster, etc., why are they not in the professions? And I think it's a bit of a harsh one. And like design and architectures, because it's so hard to give up what you what it's design, it's taste, it's uh, it's personal opinion, isn't it? It's about something very personal. If you are the designer, it's and it's so hard to give up that opinion of what's right or what's beautiful or what should be designed as. So I think this is a very like difficult one because I'm an architect as well, and um, yeah, I've worked in amazing practices which are actually quite diverse and at least 50% male female. So I never e experienced apart from the disability that I didn't know about. <laughs> I didn't experience, uh, but I'm white, I'm from German, so I was always, always thought of as extremely capable and on time, okay. even if I was late. <laughs> so <laughs> that's okay. a reverse prejudice, right? So, so anyway. Okay, so okay. vielen Dank für Ihre Meinung. Das war sehr wichtig zu diskutieren heute Abend. Und now we go to the lady with the glasses over there. the university either <laughs> we used to teach together um i'm gonna I'm, this is great because we're getting a little bit controversial i would like can i be the first person to say that jane jacobs is not my hero wow i was looking forward to that thank you it's okay because i can say that because i'm a woman i've got some issues with her theories um i don't like the phrase eyes on the street because i think it's about surveillance that for a lot of people is problematic. And from an urbanist point of view, the book that I'm writing about children and housing, um, I think it's kind of this mantra of we know best, we know that streets are best, they're civilizing. In fact, if you read her stuff again, you realize that she absolutely hates housing estates. 
she hates motorways, but she also hates housing estates. She hates them because she thinks they're just full of criminal teenagers behaving badly. And she hates parks as well, because they're also full of children behaving badly. And there's a kind of subtext here, which is that, like, there's a way we should be behaving, that I know what that is, and it's my way. And I know how to civilise the population by keeping an eye on them. And I think when you talk to people, which I do a lot of and have for the book and also for the work that we do, they're not... They're not talking about this kind of eyes on the street. They're talking about their relationship with the people that they know and the bonds that they want to build. And I think, I think we should be mindful of... Sorry, Martin, for challenging this. And also Farah for speaking really well. And I think... I know Farah, when she kind of name-checked me. Um, and I think, actually, the stuff that she talks about sometimes challenges us. She was talking about it, like, coming over to our side as urbanists and architects, but actually she says some really interesting things about how we need to think differently about training and inclusivity. And um, I think you're right, Sarah, this idea that we can't just accept everything at face value. The, 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 the fountains, um, we're working with a group in Earl's Court who are really diverse, and one of them said, I think a safe space is somewhere where I feel comfortable being silly. I'm not going to describe that person's characteristics because I think that's a bit exploitative, but I think those phrases are really helpful in terms of thinking about what it is that for some people who you might describe as vulnerable, they want to feel like they can do something subversive. And I think for a lot of us, women and people who uh, don't always feel safe, being subversive is something that you do when you feel really, really safe and comfortable. And you were talking about that Beyonce and it's about safety in numbers. Um, and I do think you're right, Claire, about how we think about, uh, like, is this any of this to do with design? You were saying this before, Deborah, weren't you? Like, is it even about design? Is it about our relationship with other people? So how can our architecture foster the kinds of relationships with other people? And I think where I've ended with some of the work we've got is that there is not one answer. And I... And, and, and I I have another issue. I've got so many issues. You all know I've got so many issues. <laughs> I've got issues with, I'm not going to name it, but the whole anti-Muga thing, because I think there's a lot of girls who really do like playing football and we've forgotten about them and they're winning the World Cup a lot better than the boys are right now. So anyway. <laughs> um, you know, we applause you know. for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, the lionesses. So we need to be really careful about not bringing our own biases, even if our biases are about loving swings more than moogers uh because that is it works for some people and it doesn't work for everybody and i the more i get into this subject the more i know there is no one answer so there is no one design and but we do need to keep thinking as designers sorry that was a very long no 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 that's rant. all to the good there was a chap sat next to hannah who had his hand up ages ago and you were nodding along there do you want to add anything to the discussion you sir yeah <laughs> And then oh, I, I think we know. had I a few hands. I didn't have my hand up. Did I you not? Oh, no. okay. But that's okay. Um, it's all right. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, in my work, I, I went through this, uh, like, oh, we're going to design this nice piece of urban realm. Uh, we're going to make it inclusive and welcoming and flexible and high quality. And guess what? There was a bench. Why? Old people need places to sit when they're traveling around the city. Well, guess who was sitting on the bench? Street drinkers. Even when there was a million other people doing everything and anything 
in that space. The street drinkers liked to be there because it was a great public space. The bench is no longer there. It got taken out. Why? Politicians. They make choices about our urban realm, uh, and they are listening to the people who are crying and complaining the loudest. You know, they're not, they're not paying, you know, w when we talk about doing consultation and being inclusive and all that stuff, uh, I think public art can be a great tool for that because there are a lot of people who've, who wouldn't put themselves forward. They wouldn't participate. If you said, we're, we're doing a consultation about this public space and how comfortable everybody feels here, there are a lot of individuals who, who would be users of that space who wouldn't necessarily attend a consultation. Mm. If you had another mechanism to involve the community and more of the community, um, like a public art project or a warming mm. space or something like that, and then you kind of like slipped the consultation in, I think that would be great. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, politicians, politicians make choices about yeah, public it's space. about that 3 p.m. on a wet wet Wednesday consultation thing it's like who's going to come to that um speaking of coming to people we've got a, yeah. someone with the microphone over there and then I know yes I definitely want to chat to you <laughs> and then I know you, this lady one? over there had a, had a question so let's go in that order if we may okay um slightly daunted to say this to a room of mostly architects but I think as architects we really need to check our arrogance um, I think we think we have a lot of power where we don't and what I thought was a really interesting case study amongst the chat tonight was actually um, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which is near where I work. And I think, how crazy is that, that the space for you totally changed, where the physical aspects, nothing changed, nothing about the space actually changed. So forget your talk about benches, fountains, nothing changed except Beyonce. So let's bring more Beyonce into public spaces. Like it's about activating spaces. I think that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> um, yeah, let's check our arrogance. It's not all about benches and lighting. Great. Um, I'm going to come to the lady and I'm going to give my microphone and then we'll come to the gentleman if that's what that works. And then I'm going to come to the lady next to me if that works. Um, I guess I'm probably going to echo or reinforce some of the things that have been said. Um, I'm an artist filmmaker and I've just done a project in Ebbsfleet Garden City, which is one of the largest developments happening at the moment. And um, so I've been coming in kind of towards the end of the process. I haven't been doing any consultation sessions and I've been working um, intergenerationally with a much older community and the much younger community. And I think consistently what's come up is people want to find their own spaces and they want totally undesigned spaces. It's, they want to populate the in-between, the underused, they want to invent and, and be sort of in their own quiet way as anarchic, as anarchic as they want to be. So for me, that's sort of just, yeah, I guess just from my personal experience in the last year, feeling like people need to, to be really free to be creative in how they use their own public space and not be dictated by a bench or a fountain or a, because they just get misused or reappropriated or reused and I think that's where the energy of the city lies. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the best installations I saw at London Design Festival ever was, uh, and I can't remember who the architect or designer was, but um, it was a series in um, in Broadgate Circus in that complex. And um, the PRs were getting quite annoyed because people were kind of using it. It was a series of benches and in various shapes or forms. People were using it before they'd done the press preview. But actually, people felt they had permission to use it. There was construction workers there. There was families. It kind of worked. And that's the kind of spaces that we need. So benches don't necessarily have to be bad, but they just have to be better. Okay, now, I was talking to this chap before the talk started, and he was talking, had a really interesting experience um, and um, angle on sort of, you know, the police issue. So, over to you, sir. Um, I'm Brian Quinn. I used to work at CABE and at Design Council, and when I was at CABE, I actually was given the role of sort of building bridges, shall we say, with the police and secure by design uh, population, um, and not to see them as sort of other and different. I would echo what this lady said about as designers we shouldn't be arrogant to sort of think that we know the answers um, because as an example we did a piece of work that was funded by the home office but included designers planners and the police looking at recently built housing schemes and one of the really interesting things was which I think also chimes with what Dine is saying about um, uh, Jane Jacobs is there's a certain naivety and I think also uh, a period feel to Jane Jacobs in terms of her reliance on the community policing itself. And the police, when we went round a lot of housing estates, said that just doesn't happen anymore. People do not self-police their neighbours. They call the police. Um, and, and if a neighbour parks in front of their house, they call the police because they're not prepared to sort of tackle the neighbour. Or if, the kids, if there are kids playing and perhaps they're being a little bit noisy, no parent is going to tell off another parent's kids. Um, and they said that was then becoming a real drain on the public purse. And I think that's something we need to sort of think about once we design places, is, is sort of, can it operate without significant intervention afterwards? Because often the police are brought in when there's perceived to be a problem. You know, there is a problem, people are complaining about it, it's getting to politicians, something must be done. And the challenge with designers often as a community is we are competing against a catalogue of kit that can be bought for the budget. So more fences, more barbed wire, CCTV. And there is a chunk of the population that wants that. They want a hardened approach. They want alleyways cut off. They want nobody there to feel that they can sleep at night. Some people want a more creative approach, but not everybody. And I think this is a, I suppose I would give a plea for sort of better dialogue between different people who are beyond the design community and understand where they're coming from. And I, I ran some quite interesting sessions with the police and security advisors and what have you, that they are, they are in some ways used to being in a tell mode, telling people what needs to happen. But they can be in a dialogue mode if you give them space and you listen to what they're saying. And also to chime with what Deborah was saying, is if you can create shared evidence and research that they all buy into, you can get better outcomes. But sort of slinging mud at each other doesn't necessarily help. And I'm, I'm conscious that Secure by Design has had, you know, has been quite challenged in that front. I mean, it doesn't help that they're not, it's not really done in a very visual designery way, you know, um, which doesn't help. But I think I would make a plea for dialogue, having been part of it and in the thick of it. And when I first started talking to the police, I was literally barracked at a conference. And three years later, once we had some shared evidence, there was a bit more 
you know, agreement that there was, there was a shared view on certain things. And as designers, to accept that times when we're wrong, you know. Shocking. Yes, <laughs> and particularly, just as an example, um, the whole issue of rear parking courts. Really big issue for the police. And actually, I sort of, we rode back a huge amount on rewriting design guidance for housing, you know, around things like rear parking courts and how badly they perform in terms of crime. And, and uh, thankfully, we're seeing less of that now. But um, anyhow, I'll let you get on. Yeah. Yes. All good. Happy to chat more to people. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm going to try and remember what I was going to say. <laughs> but it goes back to Beyonce. And oh, oh wait, everything yeah. does, right? <laughs> um, Sorry. And sadly, I've, he I've heard like accounts of not very good experiences of the Beyonce concert in the area, especially like some hostility from, let's say, local residents towards the concert goers. So it almost seems like the like things like people throwing stones at people who are going to the concert, things like that. So it, it kind of seemed like the essence of Beyonce might have not stuck around in the area, but I think there's something to be said about it's not like there aren't queer people in Tottenham or people who don't love Beyonce in Tottenham and actually want to do good. But I think there's something to be said about the, I guess, the isolation in sort of how the stadium might have been built. It's like this project, like how you said, the area around is still the same, but the stadium's completely transformed and how maybe the community and context almost like flip the scenario around in terms of inclusivity and how we're talking about the police and Deborah has the um, course and they look into how Hackney police, uh, most people are from Essex because they're too scared to live in the actual area. So I think there's something to be said about how Beyonce is amazing, the, the, the <laughs> essence of Beyonce should stick around, but it should be considered when I guess like developments are made and how do you not create like an isolative isolated case of people are going in and out for one thing I guess. yeah yeah no great point um let's come yeah. to you again and then after that i think we're gonna have to go to the speakers for their final points and then we can just continue the discussion perhaps in a more informal way hi, hi sorry i I, re I only want to speak because i also work for a council and i feel like <laughs> there's been a bit of council bashing or government bashing and um which i totally understand but I think, I think there is a, a few things to think about there, and I just want to respond to a few, a few points. So somebody talked about, um, you know, designers saying, oh, you know, it, it's that Beyonce thing was about, um, you know, the different use of space rather than any different design. There's a lot that goes into the design of the facilitation of those things. So there is still, like, a whole element of design to those elements. So let, let's not forget that. Um, I think, um, I really think, um, you know, you talked about the point earlier around... Um, you know, the bench being uh, taken away because politicians decided that. There's a lot that goes into that decisions. And if you have the right people to fight fight on your council, it kind of really goes back to what Martin said about going, people think there's good and bad people. But when you start to tell them, no, people are just people, if those drinkers aren't there, they'll go somewhere else. And they're still people. Like, what do we do about how they feel about, you know, do we give them help in other ways? In the borough I'm in, we have a peer. We have a peer that is apparently... Um, the second most popular place for suicide in this country. Um, and <laughs> we're like, well, we can't get rid of the beer, but how do we address that? And how, how do we say they're not bad people that are doing that, but we don't want them to be doing that. So how can we look at space and fight the right battles to, to address those issues? And thirdly, when it comes to... Um, 
uh, co-designing, you know, you talk, Claire talked about um, uh, more uh, empower, and, and many people talked about empowering um, communities to be part of designing spaces. I think is really important. But I would encourage you. Um, so, so for my council, because I genuinely believe in that in the urban spaces that we design I've like made it a priority that we do these co-design ex exercises get as many stakeholders as many different age groups backgrounds all of those things look at the representation but I've encouraged that in my council it wouldn't have happened we would have spent money on other things that I don't think are important it's end of financial year if any of you have clients who are councils go and say don't spend it on that spend it on this spend it on this one day co-design activity we can do it in a school we can do it here and they'll find the money to do it because I did um, so yeah that that's my other two cents <laughs> perfect okay I'm gonna start with the closing thoughts I'm afraid um, ladies and gentlemen sorry I've, I've tried not to say anything but no one's talked about streets and these are the spaces that we use all the time and this is like probably the space where I've experienced the most sort of discomfort and being scared and actually like how do we design them to be safe and also I mean I think even like designing out I think that language is problematic so how do we feel safe but then make it safe yeah I don't I don't know that's just a question but we've talked a lot about public spaces but not actually about the street as the biggest public space okay okay um, Deborah I'm gonna come to you for your closing thought and perhaps what's you, what what you what surprised you? What you want to sort of end on as your, you know, closing gambit? Uh, my closing gambit is how much do you think a graduate who starts as a police officer gets before they start the course? How much do you think they get? They've just finished uni, three years at uni. Come on, Ben, don't tell the don't tell them. Ben, tell them. Well. You, are you definitely sure about this? Yeah? Yeah? Um, 36,000 pounds. 37 and a half. 37 and a half thousand pounds before you even take a step. You do 10, year, 10, 10 months, 10 months, and then you get another grand. Policing is an industry in our country and it's very well lubricated. And I think your point about, we talk about design out crime. Crime and the war on crime is industrialized warfare. The money spent on tasers and I don't even know the names, those things they shoot out in the road on the street to slow down the cars, the, the, the software, the hardware. Honestly, it is just lift the lid on what is going on because it shouldn't be design out crime. It should be design in community. It should be about communities taking care of each other. The inspiration I got is instead of spending all that money on young men who quote when interviewed about why they want to join the police force. Thank you for this, Deborah, because you introduced me to a man who'd been in the police force for 30 years. Why did you join? Because I wanted to drive a car really fast with a blue light on top. And they said, yes, mate, that's why we all do it. So that, that's what we're up against. We want to take that type of philosophy and replace it with money spent on community, not a war on poverty, not a war on people with mental illnesses. You know, when the police say, we're not going to use our time looking after mental health patients anymore, well, what the fuck are you going to do with the money that you're paid to look after mental health? 
student people with. You know, the, the, the money at the bottom of this is extraordinary. So um, my plea for you is to look to the Maori culture where they have the, the Maori guardians who are members of the local community who are the, usually it's a woman over 40 who goes up to the children misbehaving in the streets because she knows who they are. She works in the community. There are over a thousand of them in, in, in New Zealand. And they, and that again, thank you for the reference, Deborah. Um, it's amazing, there are other ways of doing it. And we really need to step right back from all these kind of little tools and things that we're talking about and look at the big vision. We need a world without less money spent on policing. Thank you. Where's the applause? I thought people I know. Were <laughs> they were just politely pausing. Um, okay, um, we'll go Martin, closing thoughts, and then we'll... Um, Hannah. Helen, you're really getting my step count up. Wrong guy, right, yeah, you know. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to the... Um, the way that the debate has moved uh, now and again away from physical design and to your point of curation of places and i think that if we if we embed design in how we think about building and making places it's as much about what we uh, do in them and what we create to enable things to happen in them as it is about designing benches and fences and things that stop cars driving into into buildings it's about what we create in order to let people do stuff that makes places happy and full and joyful. More Great. fountains. All fountains. Okay. It's fountain of knowledge. Um, Hannah, you're up next. Um, so a couple of things I've been thinking about as everyone's been speaking um, about thinking about um, people ruining things or tagging stuff. Like I kind of straddle the street art, graffiti artist community, and compared to also being commissioned by local authorities, and so they're a very different spectrum. Um, and one of the things that a lot of clients or even sometimes people come up to me whilst I'm painting murals and be like, oh my God, but it's just gonna get tagged. And it's like, well, then we fix it. Like all we have to do is fix things one more time than it was broken. And you gotta do it again and again and again. And that's how we have nice things. Like even if there was someone who threw stones, I mean, uh, Tottenham I think gets a bad rep and it, it doesn't deserve it, but that would have been one dickhead do you know what i mean it, it's not the community of tottenham so there's always going to be someone who tags or someone who throws stones or someone who pisses in the corner of the alley or someone there's going to be there's we can't stop that so like i just think we need to really commit to what we're doing and yeah just really like give it some welly and then i just wanted to say one thing on the the arrogance of Ar architects and artists and designers and blah 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 because I, I feel a bit conflicted with this because I do a lot of engagement work but I also think sometimes there's put like so much emphasis on like the community can lead something or do something and like so many people are managing so much in their lives right now from cost of living to like just getting by and then to be like and also if you could help us design this park <laughs> like it's like I just think we need to really think about not being uh, wholly extractive and think about who has the time to actually help make those decisions because sometimes we just go back to the same people in the in the community or this or think who has the capacity to actually do that and it is our job as long as we like listen and we can we integrate that i think we can't just yeah it is a real balance and we can't and it takes money to invest in people to ask them to like put things on or to do stuff or whatever um that takes a huge amount of money because yeah for to just get the community to do it is a huge ask especially at this moment 
in time. So yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thoroughly enjoyed that, Hannah. Um, yeah, I think actually just riffing straight off that point, there's this whole thing about en like engagement burnout that people aren't considering. The, you know, the whole idea of keeping going back to community people go, well, they just don't care. They're not engaged, and it's like, well, you've been ripping up their estate for ten years. I'd be pretty pissed off by this point too. You keep asking their opinion, they're not doing it anyway. Um, being really transparent in our designs and like in our approaches all you can do in that setting. But I just wanted to return to um, oh, one thing. My friend Tilly is here. She's a runner She's an, and a filmmaker, not an architect. And she says we all need to watch If the Streets Were on Fire. There you go. Change resources, people. Um, and I wanted to go back to your point about Beyonce. And, and it's so nice that people are talking about Beyonce at a talk like this. Firstly, but... I just think when, when you were talking about like people throwing stones at it and people finding it problematic the way that women were acting in the streets, and this is actually what we're talking about, about being girly. So we're talking before everyone got here about how when I go out, I'm like, oh, I'm going for drinks with the girls. But if a guy on site is like, oh, go and ask the girls, I'm like, I'm a woman, how fucking dare you? So why do I want to be like a girly with my girls? And H Hannah loves to use the term girly. And we want to go and dance to Beyonce, but we're also women. And it's this idea that's projected in film and, and, and from a young age, what teen girls engage in is seen as silly and stupid. And, you know, we start constricting our body actions and where we go and what streets we walk down. And we're taught fear from a really young age. And actually, then the idea of a load of women dancing through the street and, you know, gays and theys having a great time going to Beyonce, it's just kind of shocking. And actually that is, that's something that we've, you know, we've learned from movies and media. It's not architecture. And we need to examine what sources we're taking in a little bit more. And I think it's that point that you were saying come out, like about how we think we're so powerful, but actually we just, I think there's so much subconscious bias in our lives that are not architecture and i agree with you about the designing out it's like people walk down streets not just architects and that's like why i write about my running and people are like wait so are you in the sports department or are you in the architecture department i'm like in the architecture department but i have another personality like and that's what running has brought to me is other voices that aren't in this room essentially sorry everyone um and I also just wanted to touch on Deborah's point about defunding the police, whereas actually I, I'm anti-incarceration and I think we should stop imprisoning people because then there'd be less need for the police and that's a feminist issue. And if we think that we as women are going to protect ourselves or protect society in the fabric of fear by policing and incarcerating and arresting and it's not the way forward. Incarceration ends up costing women more when men come out of prison. Um, I mean, the m male population of prisons is larger than the women population, but they tend to end up cohabiting with their caring women in their lives, and therefore it costs the women more again. There's already a gender pay gap. Everything is, you know, becoming a woman's burden. So it's not just about defunding the police. It's about anti-incarceration, if you want to be a true feminist, it's not about being a carceral feminist. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. I think that deserves a round of applause as well, right?
Um, so designing for inclusivity in the pub in the urban realm. So we've had um, we've had various sort of strands of thought: defunding the police. Um, you know that balance and making you know that ability and permission to make things a bit more subversive so that things aren't perfect the imperfection in in the public realm being able to kind of deviate from what it was originally used for um yeah uh listening to women over 40 should always be encouraged deborah um and if in doubt default to queen bay right so um but she isn't here tonight but hugh is so he's going to add some final closing remarks i think Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I just want to say thank you to all our speakers for taking time to join the debate. Thank you to Martin, Sarah, Hannah, Deborah, and Thora from distance. Yeah, round of applause, please. And um, the talks wouldn't happen without people being willing to give up their time to come and do them. And thank you very much, Helen, for chairing in your inimitable manner, as always. Um, just to quickly say that we tend to hang around a little bit, so if anybody wants to carry conversations on, have some more drinks, please feel free. It's always good to meet people you've not met before. And uh, obviously there'll be a, another Negroni talk coming probably in the next month um, in March. So uh, look at our website or whatever other platforms it appears on. And if anyone wants to find out why since we've been talking about Beyonce, why Taylor Swift helped to regenerate Victoria Park, you can go and speak to my esteemed colleague, Steve, who's propping up the end of the bar there, uh, who's suddenly a convert to her music, uh, seemingly, so, uh, which only happened this week in the office. So, um, yeah, please hang around, have a chat, have some more drinks, and thank you very much for all coming and contributing. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.